Just going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the first letter of John. I'm going to read two passages, first from 1 John 3, verse 19 to 24, then chapter 4, 13 to 18. And just to let you know that I'll be finishing off um, this series that we've had in 1 John tonight. And the reason I'm doing it is because I'm going to finish off Ephesians at last, next Sunday evening, because it fits in more appropriately with the, the devil who's going to come and speak and what's going on in her life and the, the ministry she has with that International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. So I switched it around a wee bit. So we'll be looking at First John in the morning and evening tonight. And I'm just going to read from verse 19 of chapter 3. And we read, John says to us, This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence, whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask, because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he loves us. These, those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gives us. And then from chapter 4, verse 13, just from verse 13, we read here, We know that we live in him and he in us, because he has given, of, given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence in the day of judgment, because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Thank God for his word. And come to him now in prayer. And Father, we pray that, that you'll help us to understand from your word what it is that gives your people confidence in you and in our standing with you. And that you'll help each one of us to receive from you that we might have that confidence that is your will for each one of your people, that sense of assurance in Jesus. Lord be with us, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here again then uh, with John, we're going to look at a subject that is just so relevant and of such practical importance. And that is the subject of confidence. The grounds of our confidence before God and in our relationship with God. Now, as I've mentioned on a, a number of occasions in, in the past, hey, nearly lost my life there. Uh, um, this is, I believe, a problem that, that we see around in the church of today, a problem of, of confidence. For on the one hand, with some Christians whose confidence 
before God, but borders on and sometimes maybe even strays over into the arrogant. And yet trying not to be too harsh or, or judgmental, but at the same time as you look at their life and the way that they live, there can at times seem to be little real grounds for that kind of confidence. But on the other hand though, there are other Christians through whose life Jesus just shines through. Christians who you know in your heart God wants to to use in a great way, but who are crippled by fear and and by self-doubt. You know, how can God love, never mind use, somebody like me? Well, you see, John faced exactly the same kind of problem in his day. And we've looked at a little bit of the mechanics of this over recent weeks and months. That is, again, these false teachers who had infiltrated the church. And who claimed that that they had an experience totally devoid of any kind of moral or doctrinal content. In fact, that led them into false doctrine and immoral living. And yet, which they claimed lifted them up onto a higher spiritual plane. That brought them into a, a depth of intimacy, of relationship with God that previously was unknown. With the result of this being in the context that John was writing into here, that some sensitive, sincere Christians had begun to lose confidence before God, had even begun to doubt that they they really knew God. Now, over recent weeks, we've seen how John demolished the position of these first-century heretics and how he had established so, so clearly that what actually lies at the very heart of authentic Christianity are things like right doctrine, holy living, and loving actions. But now you see, having dealt with the the heart of the problem, now here John moves on to to tackle its symptoms. Here he, he really begins to scratch where the people are itching by looking at three key areas in the Christian life And showing in each of these areas what the basis for true confidence actually really is. So we're going to look at at some of these areas. Now we've already touched on a number of them in 1 John over these recent weeks. But I'll just say to you, stick at it because we're going to be coming today at this from a different angle. And that I think you'll see will open up new and fresh insights. So let's look then at this theme of confidence of just what our confidence before God and in our relationship with God should actually really be based on. And we'll look first at confidence in love with our attention focused in the main here on on two sections from those passages that we read. Chapter 3, verse 18 to 20, where it says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And then the second half of verse 16 and verse 17 to 18 of chapter 4 where it says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, 
But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now what John's getting at here, I believe, is a very important biblical truth. And that is that while actions and works and deeds, etc., don't make us into Christians, they don't because the basis of our salvation, what makes us a Christian, is faith in the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross and that alone, faith alone, grace alone. There's nothing we can do, nothing that we can add to what Jesus did there. Yet, as part of the outworking of that salvation, once we have become Christians, then actions and works and deeds, they do have a place because they prove the reality of that salvation. They prove that God's love really is alive and at work in our heart. And I hope you've got that. It's important. Works of love don't make us into Christians. But once we are Christians, once we are Christ, they do prove that we truly are his. And that's the, the vitally important spiritual truth that, that John is communicating. But in addition to this, John connected to this is also hinting at something that I think is of great practical relevance. And it's aimed, I think, at those of us who are maybe inclined to be a bit introspective those of us who are inclined to just keep on looking at ourselves and managing to see faults in our lives and managing to blow up these things magnify these little things way out of proportion and then as a result get swallowed up by all, all sorts of different doubts and fears with our resulting lack of confidence before God maybe even driving us into something like a, a state of spiritual depression getting down on ourselves now you see, what John then is saying here is, he's saying, stop looking in and instead get on with living out your faith. Start putting your Christianity into action. You who lack confidence in your faith, unlike some who maybe need to do the opposite, you though, you need to think and talk less about your Christian faith and you need to start doing more. Do that. Start loving more. Start filling your life more and more with sacrificial service. And you will be amazed at how quickly you drive those blues away and how your confidence begins to grow in your standing before God. This, I believe, is what John is at least hinting at here in verse 18 and 19, where he says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. With this then tying in with what John goes on to say in chapter 4 about perfect love, where he says perfect love drives out fear. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Because, you see, on the surface, as I look at this, it would seem to me more likely that what's said here would actually drive those lacking in confidence to distraction rather than driving out fear, as it says. The thought process is easy to imagine, isn't it? You know, I'm not perfect in love. I'm not perfect 
in anything. That's why I fear them. And this lack of this quality of love in my life, if fear is then present in my heart, that leads me to the conclusion that maybe I've got no grounds for confidence before God. And maybe all this shows me I'm not even his. Now what I want to say to you here is that I believe that all of this arises out of a complete misunderstanding of what perfect love actually is. For you see, perfect love, I believe, is not about reaching some ultimate level of love because that's always going to be beyond us. Nor is it about obtaining a quality of love that's perfect in its purity because, again, we'll never do that. We've got sin in our hearts. No, rather, I believe perfect love, what the Bible means by perfect love, it means a fully rounded love. It means a love that's whole, that's complete, that's full. It means a love that, if you like, is perfect in its symmetry. You see, perfect love is God's love for me being answered by my love for him, with this then being expressed by deeds of love towards others, by love in action. And you see how this, this perfect love then drives out fear? It does because, you see, the devil comes to us and accuses us, as he loves to. He tells us that God doesn't love us. He tells us that we don't really belong to him. He tells us that we've got no real faith. However, you see, if we know that God's love lives in our hearts, if we know that we have a real love for him in our life, and if we believe what God's word clearly tells us, that God will never turn away any who come to him in the name of Jesus. And as we show that love of Jesus in our life, well, we then can turn back Satan's accusations. We can cast out fear because perfect love, when we know God's love for us, when we love him in return, when we show his love in our lives, perfect love, that full love, drives out fear. So there is indeed then confidence in love, but there is a a downside to that. In that if we are people who just talk about love, Or if we are people who just love selectively, that is, people who we like when it suits us. Well then, this lack of love, this lack of God's kind of quality of love, this lack of God's all-embracing love, this lack of love that reaches out to the unworthy and the undeserving, this then does leave us with no grounds for confidence before God. Well, reflect on that and let's move on to look next at at confidence in prayer. And what the true basis for confidence in prayer actually is. Because you see, it would seem that in John's time, these false teachers then, that they said that prayers are answered either because of the, the form of words that are used or because of ecstatic intensity. And these kind of things, these two qualities, they said, these together form the basis for confidence in prayer when we come to God in prayer. Now, I've got to say, I've known people during my ministry at times who've had a very similar 
outlook, people who said to me, you know, that, that God will give you the desires of your heart. Just decide what you want, pray it, use the right form of words, add in Jesus' name, amen. And if you do that, then if you've got faith, it will be yours. And I've also known others who've said that, that the real secret is to confidence in prayer, is persistence in prayer. That if you just keep on going, keep on praying, no matter what, eventually God is bound to crack and God will always give you what you want. I want to ask, is that what prayer is really all about? Are these the kind of methodologies that will lead to, to true confidence and real success in prayer? Well, let's see what, what John says, particularly here in verse 21 and 22 of chapter 3. He says, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Now here we, we kind of hear echoes, do, do we not, of other words of John, this time from his gospel, other famous words, John 15, verse 16, where Jesus says, the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Seems to fit then, doesn't it? We can receive from him anything we ask as long as we pray in Jesus' name. But is that, that kind of surface understanding, really what's being said here? I, tell you, I don't believe it is. For as I've made clear, I'm sure before to you, in New Testament times, doing something in someone's name meant doing it as they would do it. So you see, praying in Jesus' name means praying with the character of Jesus. It means praying as he would pray. It means seeking in our situation to find his mind and to pray his prayer. And in case you think this is just some kind of theological cop-out to try and justify failing to truly live in faith, in case you're thinking that way, well then I'd ask you to look at the context here in which John makes both these statements. For in 1 John, he says in verse 21, we receive from him anything we ask. Yes, he does. But why? Why? Because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Well, what does that speak of? But the character and lifestyle of Jesus. And then that statement from John 15, 16 well, listen here to how this is actually cushioned in the Bible. Jesus said, I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Then, then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love one another. Now, does that not also speak of the character and lifestyle of Jesus Christ. So you see, prayer isn't about us finding some form of magic key in terms of words, some form of words that will force God to act. It will just have to do whatever we say. No, and neither, I believe, let me add, is prayer about us nagging God into submission. Rather, prayer 
is about us growing into a relationship, a relationship of such depth and such intimacy with God, that so because of that, because we're in that relationship, we come to know in a situation what his heart, his mind, his will, his desires are. And then knowing that, we can beseech him to act. You see, prayer isn't about, as some might seem to imagine, it isn't about us trying to change God's mind. No, prayer is about us seeking to have our minds brought into conformity with his. And I just want to add that this does have particular reference for persistence in prayer. Because you see, the Bible does command persistence in prayer. It does, but as I've suggested, I believe this is is often twisted and misunderstood today in terms of us you know, coming to God with fixed ideas in our minds about what we want and determined to keep on and on and on him until he gives way. But I would want it to argue in response to this that, again, persistent prayer can only really be understood when it's set where it should be in the context of relationship. For while persistent prayer is about being determined in prayer. It is about being consistent in prayer. There's nothing wrong with those qualities. They're all vital ingredients in true biblical prayer and certainly a part of what persistent prayer is all about. Yeah, I would also want to say, I would want to add, is that this prayer also is again firmly rooted in our relationship with God. And this kind of persistent prayer that's in that relationship with God will always recognize that no matter how long we've been on the Christian road, no matter how spiritual we might be, no matter how we might believe in our heart we're seeking God, yet no matter what, that we are always still fallible human beings. We can still get things wrong. That there's another far greater partner involved in our prayer relationship. And so you see, true persistence in prayer, biblical persistence in prayer, will always be determined, but it will also always be open to being redirected by God. To having God show us something more and then going on again, persistent in prayer. But there's a big question here, I'm sure, isn't there? And that is why, though. Why, despite all this, despite our our conviction, we are in God's will? Why, despite all our persistence, why is it that at times our prayers still don't seem to be answered? Well, for me, there, there seems to be two main answers to that question. And one of them is that despite our certainty, we're not praying as Jesus would have us pray. We're not praying with his mind. We've not found his mind. And as Jesus says in Matthew 7, which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? But you see, if the son or the daughter is foolish enough to ask for a stone instead of bread, instead of good gifts, what will the father do then? Well, it seems to me that a good father will refuse to answer his child's request until they get things right, that he will say no. Another reason I believe why God appears not to answer prayer 
is because God delays his answer. It's not that God doesn't answer, but rather it's that God waits before he answers. So why does God delay? Why? Does he just enjoy kind of tantalizing us? Is this some kind of act of of vindictiveness by God? Well, let's just think and look at a good example of a delay by God. It's that of Moses on, on Mount Sinai. Because you see, on Mount Sinai, Moses was there for 40 days. But why was he on that mountain for 40 days? Why could God not have shared the truth that he shared at the end with him on the first day? Why? Well, I don't believe that this has got anything to do with vindictiveness. Don't believe that because that's totally contradictory with the character of God that's revealed elsewhere in the Bible. There's nothing of that in God. But Roy Clements, who I read, you know, I think he's really helpful. I think he points us in the right direction because he suggests that this is not because he's reluctant and needs to be persuaded, but rather because we need to be more deeply conscious of his grace before it is safe for us to be blessed as we desire. The reason for such a delay is that God does not want us to take his generosity for granted. And you get that. You get it. Sometimes God waits until we get to the point where we are truly, spiritually able to appreciate what he's doing. But after all this, you may wonder then, well then, why should we pray? Why should we pray at all if he is a sovereign God and if we cannot change his prayers, uh, if we cannot by our prayers change his mind, affect his will, why then should we pray at all? Now, let me put it this way. This is, is my conviction. This is what I've become convinced of over the years. I don't believe that we can change God's mind by our prayers. I don't believe that we can make him do what he would not do. I don't believe that. I don't believe we can affect a sovereign God in that way. What I do believe, though, is that there are things that God would do that he will not do unless his people pray. And it's, again, all because of that relationship dimension. Have you got that? There are things that God would do that he won't do until we pray. <clears throat> but I hope that that's been made clear that confidence in prayer isn't based on a form of words. The confidence in prayer doesn't depend on the level of our intensity. No confidence in prayer arises out of the depth of our relationship with God. Well, finally, let's look at confidence and experience. And by experience here, what, what we're going to be looking at is how we can be confident in our experience of God. How we can be confident that we really have received Jesus, been born again, and received of his Holy Spirit. Because, you see, again, what these false teachers in John's time, what they said was that you have to go through an initiation rite. That you have to have a certain ecstatic, mystical kind of spiritual experience before it can be said 
that you are truly of God. And then they went on to add to this, we've had it, we've got it, and we can lead you into it, we can give it to you. Now, I think that's absolutely incredible. Their doctrine was haywire, holiness in their lives was non-existence, their love was remarkable in terms of Christian love, only by its absence. And yet, they thought that because of a claimed spiritual experience, that they were on a higher plane of spiritual existence. Now, the parallels here, let me be clear, aren't exact. But there are some today who would teach that a believer hasn't really received the Holy Spirit unless they speak in tongues, with this being part of a dramatic post-conversion spiritual experience. Well, I want just to make myself clear here. I'm not against the Holy Spirit. And with some modifications in comparison to some that are out there, I do believe in the gifts of the Spirit in the sense that God is sovereign and can dispense gifts in each age according to his will. But to make an experience of this kind a necessary proof of reception of the Spirit and to make a particular giftedness that's one of many areas in the Bible of possible giftedness, the sign of some kind of spiritual superiority, well, that, I believe, I've got to be clear, is just not biblical. And I believe John makes that very clear because look at what John says in 4.13. We know that we live in him and he lives in us because he has given us of his spirit. You see, receiving the spirit isn't the sign of some kind of higher spiritual experience. No, receiving the Spirit is the basic experience that makes you into a Christian. We know that we live in him and he in us. That's what John says, because he has given us of his Spirit. And Paul says basically exactly the same thing in Romans 8 verse 9 where he says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But but John then goes on to say, what does prove this experience? What does prove that God lives in us? 1 John 4, 15. He says, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And then continuing on with this in, in, John, in 1 John 4, 16, he, he adds to this, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. You see, it's those two familiar friends that we've referred to time and time again. It's these two that prove that we've actually received the Spirit. It's right doctrine, acknowledging Jesus. And it's right living, living in love. And in fact, if you look at verse 23 and 24 of chapter 3, you find these two pulled together with something else we've mentioned again and again, pulled together with holiness. Because it reads, you read it, it says, and this is his command to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commands us. And then he goes on, those who obey his commands, that is holiness, Live in him and he in them. And this is how we know he lives in us. 
We know it by the Spirit He gives us. Now, having said all this, this is not to say that further experiences of the Holy Spirit are not precious and valuable in the Christian life. Of course they are. Of course they are. We should always want to know more and more of God. Every day of our Christian life, we should want to be more and more filled by His Spirit. And if that means spectacular and dramatic experiences, that's great. But these are not the bedrock of our Christian life. Experiences are not the proof that we actually have received of the Spirit and experienced the Spirit. No, the proof of that, that God looks for, is right doctrine, holy living, and the presence of Christ's love in our lives. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, a great theologian, somebody who lived through the the revivals in New England in the 18th century, and as part of that experienced much of the Spirit working in powerful ways. Jonathan Edwards, he said, that if claimed experiences did not blossom into growth in these very areas, then these experiences were in fact not of the Spirit, but were just sheer emotionalism. But you see, today, you can have confidence. You can be confident in your standing in Christ. If you have confidence in love, as it's proved by your deeds. If you have confidence in prayer, as that grows out of your relationship with him. And if you have confidence and experience in your experience of the Holy Spirit as this shows in the fruit of your doctrine, your holy living and your love, you can be confident. So be confident. Don't be arrogant, but be confident. Reject Satan's attack. Reject those seeds of doubt he seeks to sow in your mind. And instead of that, As your life passes examination in these areas, stand in the assurance that you should before your God. But if anybody, you know, if you do have any doubts here, real doubts, then I would say, hey, don't let things go. You know, talk to somebody. Talk it through with a mature Christian. If there's things in your life that actually do need sorted out, by repentance, sort them out. Sort out what needs sorted out. But don't let things go. Rather, let's all seek to get to that place of confidence in our standing before God. Because that is the place where God wants all his people to be. Each one of us. That's what God wants for us. And may we grab hold of that by faith. This day we pray.